You're listening to The Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and this week, uh, on this lesson of the show, we are going to deal with the anatomy of the fearfully and wonderfully made. The fearfully and wonderfully made. And I'm so excited about this particular lesson. We're still in our series, The Biblical Origin of Humanity, going through the book, Searching for Adam, Genesis and the Truth About Man's Origin. And this has been an exciting, exciting study for me so far. Uh, We've talked about cultural history, uh, which we're going to deal more with um, even a little bit next week. Uh, We've talked about biblical history. We've talked about church history. We've talked about biblical interpretation. And we've been looking at this issue of Adam and Eve. And we have literally been on this search, on this quest for Adam, trying to figure out the truth about our origins. Did Genesis get it right? You know, that's really what we're asking. Did Genesis get our origins right? Or does the majority, does the mainstream scientific community have our origins right? You know, it's two completely separate stories. Now, there are some who've come on the scene here and have tried to reconcile them in some way. Some have tried to just add long ages to the text. Uh, Some others have come in and tried to actually add in the process of Darwinian evolution and say that in light of our scientific discovery, we're going to have to reinterpret the Bible. And as we've discussed, this has even led to uh, reinterpreting the words of Paul, reinterpreting the words of Jesus, insofar even as to say that the Lord Jesus Christ himself was not making accurate statements when commenting on the beginning of the creation, such as you can see in Mark 10.6. Even just the other day, I had somebody to tell me that it was completely um, taking that out of context to ascribe Jesus' words to have had a meaningful impact on, on the creation. And as I was talking to this gentleman, he was a very nice guy, theistic evolutionist, uh, uh, I I think, I don't know, he he wasn't really very clear um, on on his beliefs, um, so I don't want to make any assumptions, but essentially he said, look, uh, you are completely taking Jesus out of context there. He was talking about divorce. He wasn't talking about creation. The whole point is that the argument rests on creation. If creation is not as Christ said it was, then there simply is no historical foundation for marriage, for divorce. It's all gone. And so what we want to know is who's right. Now, as we trust our Bibles, we have faith in our Bibles, we have faith in the authority of the Scriptures, and in in God, we, we realize and we understand that Genesis contains the truth about man's origin. And so what we've wanted to know is, does um, church history confirm that? Uh, Does the biblical text itself in other areas, uh, other than in Genesis in the first couple chapters, support that? And now, for the past couple weeks, and continuing on this week, we're looking in the areas of science and some different scientific studies and trying to determine um, if science bears out proof that we are different, that there is something special about the creation 
of mankind. And last week we dealt with this from a genetics perspective, and we looked at some very, very interesting findings by Doctors uh, Thompson and, or excuse me, Tompkins and Jensen. And we looked at some of the genetic discoveries, even uh, especially with respect to the mitochondrial DNA. And we even saw how creationists can take and and, and make testable predictions. Uh, there is this false idea amongst um, adversaries and opponents of uh, the young earth creation position that says that we simply can't make predictions. Uh, we have no meaningful framework with which to make uh, predictions about the world because at the end of the day, we're just going to say that God did it. And But, but this is a gross misunderstanding of our, of our position. Uh, right now, as it stands, the only time when we would look at something and say that God did it, okay, and, and not attempt to uh, be in any further scientific discovery of any such mechanism behind that, in those same exact areas, truthfully, um, proponents of no design whatsoever, of purely naturalistic evolution, are making the same leap of faith, but rather than call it God, they just simply call it nothing. We believe that God created the heavens and the earth, as it says in Genesis 1.1. But that same origin story in the evolutionary worldview says that in the beginning was nothing, and nothing created itself. That is not a very scientific statement at all. And yet I've seen uh, some of those exact statements come from those who uh, popularize this view, like Lawrence Krauss and, and the like. And, and so I don't want to get too off on a tangent on that, but, but as we saw last week, creationists can certainly make testable predictions about the natural world. There is a theory and a model as a whole behind the creationist position. It is not just, oh, God did it, let's move on and do something else. There is much more to our position than that, and that's what this podcast exists for, to try to teach you that. So um, I'm excited about diving into today's content. Now, we're looking today at the anatomy of the fearfully and wonderfully made, and the point that I want to get across here is that we are looking at the unique design in humans. If the biblical story is true, then there is a certain um, a, a certain way that human life is going to be designed that stands in clear contrast to the way that um, other creatures and other animals and organisms are designed. And the reason that we can kind of infer this pretty safely is that the scripture treats us this way. We are made in the image of God. Uh, animals, plants, they are not made in the image of God. No other organism shares that. And because of that, there are going to be some very specific things that are different uh, to us. And so we're looking at that this week from an anatomical perspective. Now, these two chapters, it's chapters 11 and 12 in the book, Searching for Adam, uh, were both written by um, an engineer, Dr. Stuart Burgess. Dr. Stuart Burgess, and I really, really appreciated his writing. Uh, it was a good writing style, and I appreciated his knowledge and his insight um, into this particular area. And, and I'm really uh, just taken back and impressed by what he brought to the table here and just how easy he's made it to see the difference 
in design between humans and specifically being contrasted in this lesson apes. Now he, uh, Dr. Burgess, is a full professor of engineering design at Bristol University in the United Kingdom, and he's also the winner of the Turner's Gold Medal and Wessex Scientific Medal, and he's published on 150 scientific papers on the origin, uh, excuse me, on the science, rather, of design and engineering in nature. Now here is what the author maintains. He, he maintains that there are simply vast differences in the design of organisms, Vast differences in the design of organisms. In other words, uh, while there may be things that we um, observe to be the same and shared, okay, there are going to be things that are simply different. Now, evolution has a great explanatory power for similarities, okay? So, um, but this is not the same. This is not also true of the differences. And if you study out uh, cladistics, okay, cladistics is the current modern scientific method um, uh, dealing with the area of evolutionary biosystematics. Okay, this is kind of like the classification uh, of organisms and the methods behind putting that together. Uh, Dr. Wise, in his book Faith, Form, and Time, simply concludes and, and, and lets us know that these particular methods, the cladistics method specifically, is blind to discontinuity between organisms. And this simply means that they can't see discontinuity or differences between organisms because they're not looking for it. They're not designed to give us those results. Cladistics is designed to categorize organisms based on a specific understanding of the similarities. And so the whole field of baromenology really was developed uh, in order to give us a measure of discontinuity, and we're still working on those things even today and trying to classify uh, the baromens of the different animals and different organisms uh, on the earth, and that's going to be just a, a never-ending process really until the Lord comes back. Um, but that's what we're doing, and we are working on our own methods to go in and classify organisms in a way that is consistent with biblical teaching. So that's what we're working on. Now, Dr. Burgess claims that, that key anatomical differences between humans and apes show that gradual evolution from apes to humans is impossible. Now, that's quite a claim. Uh, that is quite a claim. And there are those, I'm sure, who would who would call bogus on that and say, look, that's, that's an extraordinary claim. We're going to have to produce some extraordinary evidence. And as we look at some of this evidence, I think you'll find that it's very, very satisfactory. As a matter of fact, we're going to be able to see some clear discrepancies between the design in apes and the design in humans. So the first thing we want to look at is upright walking and bipedalism, okay? And this is mainly focused in on in chapter 11, okay, of the book. Chapter 11 mainly focuses on this idea of upright design in humans. Now, the author comments here that there are 10 particular design features that are required for upright walking and show that upright walking and running can simply not evolve step by step. First of all, he brings to light the strong, big toes. Strong, big toes. So uh, humans are designed with 
these strong big toes in order to help us provide a little bit more um, stability when we're walking and even when we're running and things such like that. And the author says this, that to walk and run properly on two legs, it is necessary to have strength and stiffness at the front of the feet so that the feet can roll forward without collapsing. And we certainly see this when we look at uh, athletes and stuff. Uh, when we, uh, of course, we've got the Olympics uh, coming up and, and and may even be going on by the time this particular podcast episode goes out. Um, but uh, we see that it, it's just amazing the design, even in just a strong, big toe. Uh, humans have a stiff, straight big toe, but the ape toe is not stiff and does not point forward. And of course, this means that um, they cannot roll forward um, without collapsing. And so this is a, a clear difference in design between the human toe and the toe of apes. All right. Secondly, uh, Dr. Burgess points out the arched feet. The arched feet. Now, our feet, uh, <laughs> my, I'm laughing because um, my wife has such a foot fetish. She, she, doesn't, she doesn't like feet. It's the opposite of a foot fetish, I guess. And, I, and so I guess a lot of people are like that. But uh, just looking at this, it made me laugh and, and think about that. Um, but really, our feet, our feet are an incredible design from our creator. Okay? Now, now get this. So the arched feet that we have, they allow fine control of the body over the feet, all right? Now, when standing upright, a person can maintain forward balance by adjusting the relative pressures on the heels and balls of the feet. Now, if anything disturbs the balance uh, in the forward direction while standing, Corrective action can be taken by carried out um, by leaning more on either the front or the back of the feet to keep the center of mass between the heel and the ball of the feet. Now, it's interesting that only humans have the necessary intricate arched structure in their feet for proper bipedal motion. So uh, this structure is not found in the feet of modern apes or even in extinct apes. Just simply not found. Now, uh, of course, the author here is an engineer. So he's going to kind of approach everything that he brings to us from this design and engineering perspective. Because he knows that when engineers set out to do a work, what they are going to do is... Lots of study, they're going to do lots of planning, lots of preparation. They're even going to consider things about the future. They're going to think about the way that um, specific structures and, and features will be used as time goes on and try to plan for that and adjust for that accordingly. And we see that same kind of idea applied here in to the design of organisms on Earth. It's really absolutely incredible. So it's well known in engineering that the most precise way of supporting a freestanding structure is to have three points of contact, such as like a three-legged stool, okay? So in contrast, apes have flat feet, and it is extremely difficult um, for them to stand on one leg. But apes also have no ability to run on two legs because their feet and toes do not have the required stiffness and strength. So it's interesting that 
when we look at the human foot, we have parts that are equivalent to an engineering arch, a keystone, and wedge-shaped blocks. And the author writes to that effect that only an intelligent designer has the ability to think ahead and plan all the features needed to make an arch such as we find in the human foot. Now, I didn't separate this out as I was uh, taking my notes down. So I'm not going to... um, I'm not going to be able to convey it that way as to what part of my notes are like this. Um, But the author, throughout both of these chapters, always makes it a point to mention the purposeful over-design. And what is simply meant by that is that the current leading evolutionist thought is simply that organisms select for survival value. Nothing less and nothing more. By the way, on a philosophical level, this is one area that I think provides a very, very um, difficult obstacle to evolution theory. Because evolution and natural selection does not and cannot select for truth. It can't select for truth. And... Why this is significant is because even if this evolutionary idea were true, there would really be no rational basis to ever know that. And this is summed up quite nicely in Alvin Plantinga's argument, the evolutionary argument against naturalism. And I'm not going to go into all that right now because it's not the focus of it, uh, of this lesson. But uh, what you need to understand is that we may not, if this is a a totally random and unguided process, this process of evolution, it could be that we don't start selecting for truth value for another 100 to 200 years. And even then, even if we looked at it then, uh, there is no reason to suggest that that we would be selecting for truth. Why does truth matter? Truth has nothing to do with survival value. Uh, By the way, in terms of that, Most often, lying has more survival value than telling the truth. So there's really no reason to be true uh, or to to make true statements or to have a a spirit of truthfulness about us on an evolutionary worldview. But the problem is even worse than that in that we wouldn't really even know what truth was, or at least we shouldn't. And at a philosophical level, this is an example of the purposeful over-design placed into our creation. And as we're going to see as we go through this lesson, it appears that the Creator designed us with features that go far beyond what would be needed for mere survival. This, uh, while we do have features that are necessary for our survival, We are going to be talking about some features during this lesson that are just very, very difficult to explain on an evolutionary worldview. Now, that's not to say that they couldn't be explained. Um, That's not to say that uh, good explanations have not been offered because in some cases they have. And if I I believe I notated one or two of those, and so we'll point those out. Uh, But the idea here is that really it's just overwhelming evidence for overdesign and creation, and that is going to provide a, a pretty insurmountable challenge to the evolutionary worldview and the idea that survival of the fittest is all there is 
to it. So Dr. Burgess makes one final comment to this extent. He says one of the reasons why creationists are so confident that the fossil record supports biblical creation is that no so-called ape man has ever been found that has any kind of intermediate type of foot between an ape foot and a human foot. This is why the human foot is one of the Achilles heels, quote, of evolution. It's really remarkable, really incredible. You know, we are constantly told that there are some sort of transitional forms that are going to be needed in order to bridge some important gaps. And if you go back to our episode where we kind of dealt with the uh, fossil record a little bit, we dealt with the fossil evidence, you'll remember us mentioning that such a, a small negligible amount of the fossils that have even been found are hominid fossils, just on the order of around 6,000. And honestly, it's just not very likely that we would find anything that would be a transitional fossil in between the two. And, and, and this whole idea of transitional fossils is an evolutionary idea. If nothing is, is found, let me just back up. It's, a transitional fossil is something that has to be understood in light of an evolutionary worldview or it does not exist. In other words, as long as we're looking at the world from a creationist worldview, what we would expect and what ought to be true is that there is clear enough differences to discern in organisms, even in extinct and, and fossilized organisms, what belongs to the human family and what belongs in the ape family. And that is, of course, what the whole discipline of baromenology attempts to do, to make clear those distinctions and those differences. All right, so let's move on to the next one uh, with that understanding in mind. And, and by the way, before we move on, just to capitalize on that, um, this is an area where we really need to be careful um, because when we use the language of transitional fossils and such like that, we're really just buying into a worldview that is not true. If evolutionism is not true, and we most certainly don't believe that it is, then we need to start talking in different terms. Even, and I know this is tough, and, and this is really not the direction I wanted to go with this podcast here, but, but even to the extent that we're using terms like species and family, and we're in the Linnaean system, um, Carol is, I think, Carl or Careless, I think it was Careless Linnaeus. Um, I don't know why I just had a, a total brain uh, meltdown on, on his name there, but uh, Linnaeus, uh, the Linnaean classification system. Um, he was a creationist, but this uh, this classification system is bound up in cladistics now and has nothing to do with the creation worldview. And so we really need to start learning the lingo and learning to talk like creationists if we're going to get taken seriously, because right now it just sounds like we're smuggling evolutionary ideas to talk about things. Uh, so I don't want to get off on that too bad. Maybe we'll talk about that some other time. Um, but let's continue moving on. So we want to get on to the long legs. Now, the length of human legs is about half the total length of the body. So whereas humans have long legs and relatively short arms, apes have short legs and long arms. Right now, long legs, of course, make it possible to walk and run long distances. So there's a clear design distinction because apes can simply not do that. Uh, in fact, it wears apes out uh, tremendously to have to walk for any sort of long distance at all. 
Now, it's important to note that um, most of the ape-to-man charts that you see uh, do not show a gradual progression from quadruped to bipedal motion. Have you ever noticed that? You have to look closely to see that. But you have to understand that such such a change, a, a change uh, in the mechanisms that it would require to go from quadruped to bipedal motion would require that for millions of years, eight men were walking clumsily on two legs without arched feet. But such a scenario is completely ridiculous. Um, again, because such creatures would be struggling to walk properly on two legs for millions of years while supposedly being habitually bipedal and fit for survival. This is one of those areas where it just doesn't make sense. Um, The evolutionary explanation in this regard has just not cut it. The creation explanation and the design explanation at this point makes much more sense. What about upright knee joints? Effective upright standing and walking requires upright knee joints. Now, this is actually an issue um, that Dr. Burgess has spent a lot of time researching. This is one of his main areas of research. So he says, now, because this greatly reduces loads in the muscles around the knee joint, all right? So upright standing and walking, it requires knee joints because it greatly reduces um, the load in muscles around them, all right? Now, the human knee joint, extends to a fully upright position. And so this is so that the long leg can be made straight and the body upright. In fact, the human knee joint also locks in the upright position. This feature makes standing easy because the muscles do not need to be kept in tension. In contrast, the knee joint of apes is not fully extendable and apes cannot stand straight. When apes stand on two legs, they have to be they have to put, excuse me, significant effort into tensing their permanently bent knees. And so here's my prediction on this. If you could somehow just bring up all the extinct uh, fossils that we find in the ground and you brought up these and you, you, you brought them up into their form that they were in and you would probably, number one, you would probably see a very clear distinction. That would be my, my guess. You would probably see a very clear distinction between what could be considered human and what could be considered apes. If you actually saw those fossils when they were in full form, when they were in the prime of their life. But I would expect in a creation model that you would be able to see which ones, you could tell who belonged to what group simply by looking at them standing on two legs. Apes cannot stand straight. Humans can. Big, big difference. What about angled femur bones? Here's another one. To walk and run effectively, it's necessary for the feet to be close to the center line of the body. We understand this, right? During walking and running, the body is supported by only one leg at any instant in time. So the body can easily topple over if the feet are not right under the body. Now, the angled femur bones have the effect of making the knees closer together and the feet close together. Now, in contrast to humans, the femur bones of apes drop down vertically, making the knees relatively far apart and the feet far apart. As a consequence, when apes try to walk on two legs, they sway from side to side to maintain balance. We've all seen that. We go to the zoo, right? Apes must have feet spaced wide apart because this gives stability in quadruped motion. 
What about upright hip joints? Upright hip joints. The author comments here that effective walking and running requires upright hip joints so that the back is upright and not bent forward. Humans have unique hip joints that give a fully upright stature. So in particular, humans have a pelvis that allows a uh, completely natural walking motion. In technical terms, the human hip joint is fully extendable. In contrast, the hip joints of apes cannot fully extend to the upright position and the apes must always have bent legs, even if they stand on two legs. And an important note that the author puts in here is that these upright hip joints are only useful if there is also an upright knee joint. In fact, he says that if an ape had upright hips without upright knees, it would be in danger of falling backward when straightening its legs. On the other hand, if an ape had upright knees without upright hips, it would be in danger of falling over forward when straightening its legs. So the two things um, really kind of work together. All right, now moving on, the upright back. The upright back. Uh, the author says, um, effective bipedal motion also requires an upright back so that the head is directly above the hips. If the head was not above the hips, uh, then there would be imbalance and large muscle forces would be required to stay upright. And an upright back is exactly what humans have. In contrast, the curved back of apes makes their torso project out in front of the hips. This means that apes must use their arms and hands to support their weight, hence the term knuckle walkers. The S shape of the human back is a brilliant design um, because it helps prevent the spine from being shocked when there is a vertical load, such as that experienced when jumping on hard ground. So when a human jumps on the ground, the S-shape acts like a little spring and deforms lengthwise uh, to prevent loads going through the spine. It's really, it's really absolutely incredible. This is not a feature that humans share with apes. Uh, in any sense of the term. All right, the upright skull. Now, even the point at which the spinal cord enters the skull um, is a big deal and a big difference. If you'll remember, we actually dealt with this a little bit the other week. It's called the foramen magnum, or the big hole, okay? And in the case of humans, um, the foramen magnum is located at the bottom of the skull. Now, in contrast, um, apes have a foramen magnum located uh, more to the back of the skull, so that the most natural position for the head is looking forward in the horizontal position. Now, according to evolution, the skull of an ape-like creature changed so that the foramen magnum moved from the back to the bottom of the skull. But there's no fossil evidence that this actually happened. So... Uh, in other words, there's no transitional form, so to speak, okay, uh, that we could point to in the ground that says, hey, it looks like it's moved a little bit, moved a little bit. I mean, it, it, it's not this nice gradual move in the fossil record like evolutionists um, would expect or at least are hoping to find. Now, there's the flat face, the flat face. Um so the flat face of humans means that when they're in an upright position and looking straight ahead, they can turn their eyes downward and look at the ground in front of their feet. Apes, though, have a large protruding jaw, 
and their field of view is much more restricted. Now, the ability to see the ground, of course, in front of the feet is is very important for bipedal locomotion because of the high position of the body above the ground and the inherent instability of two-legged locomotion. So, in other words, we are designed to be able to see where we're going. What an incredible thought. We need to be able to see where we're going, right? So we are designed to that end, um, despite the fact that we are that we sit much higher up on the ground and um, that in other cases it would be quite hard. And for the apes, especially if they were tall um, and in that same situation, they would have a very hard time walking because they wouldn't be able to look down and see the ground. And if you think about this, this this is just a good example, so a good time to point this out. But a lot of the argument here is you have to think in terms of something that doesn't exist in order to understand what we're saying. In in other words, these unique abilities or the or these unique features, I guess we should say, of apes versus humans lend credence to the fact that in between the similarities there are insurmountable differences and the point is that there should be some difference in the fossil record between the two things that I point out to you remember I'm, I'm kind of pointing out to you here what a what an ape man or, or excuse me what an ape um, is designed to have and what a human is designed to have and you would expect that there would be a transitional form in the middle of those and in many of these things there is nothing in the fossil record that we could even point to that looks something like what we think that might look like okay how about an upright balance. So humans and apes achieve balance mainly through sensors in the ear. So the inner ear has uh, three semicircular fluid-filled canals that are sensitive to movement and gravity. The canals contain sensors that consist of fine hairs and send out signals to indicate the direction and speed of head movements. All right, now humans have a relatively small semicircular canal in the horizontal plane and two large semicircular canals, anterior and posterior, in the vertical plane. This shows that humans have balance sensors specifically designed for walking upright. It also shows that walking upright requires a fine sense of balance. In contrast, though, Apes have three relatively small semicircular canals, and each is a similar size. The similar size of the semicircular canals in apes shows that apes are designed for climbing in different directions in trees. All right, so uh, in this case, it's not necessarily that one is designed superior than the other. It's that one is designed for its specific purpose, and the other is designed for its specific purpose. What about unique abilities? Unique abilities. Well, humans have, of course, the unique ability to move on two legs with great agility. One of the key requirements for agile upright movement is the ability to stand on the front of the feet by balancing on the balls and toes of the feet. And I'm suddenly taken back to marching band in high school uh, trying to walk with our instruments of course I was in the uh, I was in the drum line so you know I was carrying a drum and it was like you know they tell you to walk and it's like 
you know, you got to recite this little thing, heel, ball, toe, heel, ball, toe, heel, ball, toe. And that's because of the way that you are uh, supposed to march when you're marching in marching band, you do it, you got to roll your heel. So you got to roll your feet, roll your feet. So you roll from the heel to the ball to the toe um, in a nice uniform looking order, right? And we can do that. We can do that. Now, in contrast to the potential of the human body, apes have no ability to move on two legs with agility and speed. Apes cannot run on two legs, cannot stand on their toes. Now, there have been attempts to train apes to perform some of the two-legged movements of humans. However, they have always served to prove that apes are incapable of matching human upright movement. And I really like this illustration that... Uh, the author gives here, he talks about this uh, skateboarding film called Most Vertical Primate, in which they basically tried to get a chimp to perform some of these uh, basic skateboarding maneuvers, um, and he couldn't even do that. He couldn't even perform the basics. He couldn't actually even stay on the skateboard more than a few seconds. Uh, he had to be, um, you know, picked up constantly and put back on, and they had to piece together these little parts um, of the movie from the seconds that they were able to get him on there just to get enough shots in order to make the movie. And despite the title of the film, it actually demonstrated that apes are not designed to be vertical. And then finally for... This section, what about the purposeful design? You know, God has deliberately given humans an upright stature that makes it easy for them to subdue all the creatures of the earth, right? To secular scientists, it's a puzzle. Uh, around 4,000 mammals and only humans are bipedal out of the, out of the lot. However, this unique design feature makes complete sense from a biblical perspective. In fact, Matthew Henry said this, man has this advantage above the beasts in the structure of his body that whereas they are made to look downwards as their spirits must go, he is made erect to look upwards because upwards his spirit must shortly go and his thoughts should now rise. What a beautiful beautiful distinction made from one of my favorite Bible commentators. Uh, and he really just lays it out so nicely. We can look to the heavens. Man, what a thought. So the author summarizes this part with, with this. The ape-to-man chart that is often used to popularize evolution is deceptive and false because it gives the impression that a four-legged ape creature can walk upright with hardly any anatomical changes. In reality, there is a vast difference between a habitually bipedal human and a quadruped creature such that gradual evolution is impossible. The principle of natural selection would prevent ape-like creatures from beginning to evolve into upright walking creatures because those creatures that tried to walk upright would be so clumsy they would simply be deselected. <laughs> you know, and, and and what I thought. It's one of those cases where 
even though we observe natural selection happening as creationists, if you've been listening to this podcast especially, you should know that we are not afraid of natural selection. Um, natural selection is not a problem for a biblical creationist, but it's apparent in our experience that there are limitations to the process. And within this process of natural selection, it looks to me, and it looks to the author, and it looks to many people, that you would have a very hard time moving from some of these forms that are discussed here into another. In fact, we would argue that it would just be impossible because the, by nature, the very... Um, idea of natural selection is that it would have to go through these obvious transitions where something that is well-designed in an ape and something that is well-designed in a human, in order to get from point A to point B, there would have to be flaws in the design. It would have to be a less favorable design than A as it's making its transition to B. But the purpose of natural selection is to get rid of less favorable designs. Folks, this is why we don't see apes or anything of the sort becoming humans today. Now, I'm not arguing that way. That It's not a good argument to say, well, why are there still humans or why are there still apes today? Um, that's a complete straw man, a misunderstanding of what evolutionists believe. Don't say that. But what I am saying is this. It's apparent that apes have a good design. And if you look back in the fossil record, you see evidence of the same design. And so we'd have to imagine these, these forms in between that were just less than optimal. So much so that it appears, at least at first glance, that nature would simply deselect them along the way. And it seems impossible that any would survive. So that kind of deals with the quadruped to bipedal locomotion issue. But what about the unique skills and beauty of humans? The author makes known that in engineering, it's well known that two artifacts can have similar components, but actually have very different overall designs. So for example, a car and a train, they contain similar components such as bolts, nuts, wheels, and brakes, yet cars and trains are completely different designs with very different functions. So in a similar way, even though humans and apes have some similar components, they're actually two completely different creatures. And as well as a unique design, and this kind of goes to what we talked about a moment ago um, when opening this guy up, but, but humans also have a design beyond what is needed for survival. So humans are designed to perform tasks in areas such as writing, music, artwork, textile, and engineering, for example. So we give that the term purposeful over-design. And that term is used to describe how humans do much more than just survive. And this is very, very different and difficult to understand thinking in an evolutionary perspective because, as we mentioned, evolution does not select for uh, more than it requires. Now, uh, this is a concept, however, seen in the Bible. 
The overdesign of man, the purposeful overdesign of man is seen in the Bible. Now, the Bible says that we humans are made a little lower than the angels and that we're crowned with glory and honor in Psalm 8, 5. All right. Now, it clearly implies that humans are designed for more than just surviving in the wild. When the Bible says that humans are made to have dominion over the works of God, which you can see in Psalm 8, 6, we should expect to see evidence that humans are purposely overdesigned to be able to handle every situation they will face in that task. So what are some examples of such a thing? Humans, all right, have unique, skillful hands. And by the way, um, this is certainly another area here where my uh, my notes are just simply not going to do the book justice. Uh, you know, Inevitably, I end up saying this at some point in each one of these podcast episodes, and it's because I mean it. I mean, you need to get this book. It's so, so good. It's, it's stuffed with information, and I think it's still $5.99 on Kindle. I mean, you just need to go get it today. Link is in the show notes. Just go get it, all right? Unique, skillful hands. Now, all right, human fingers have a full range of movement from completely straight finger to a tightly curled finger, and you can see that. Now, the ability to make um, this full range of finger movements is very important for carrying out some skillful tasks. So, in contrast, though, to humans, ape fingers are naturally cur uh, curved and, um, and have limited finger movement. Now, the reason why apes have curved fingers is that this is ideal for gripping branches. Now, interestingly enough here, a very large part of the human motor cortex, of course, that's in your brain, the part of the brain that kind of controls how things, um, how your, your ligaments and such work, controls the hands, a large part, relatively speaking, of course, to the, uh, to the others. Now, uh, this speaks to the fact that we were designed to do more with our hands than uh, especially... In, in this context, the apes, okay? Now, sign language is highly dependent on the dexterity of the human hand. Pinch grips are important for tying shoelaces, working with buttons and zippers. Music, uh, as a matter of fact, apes could never do it. Apes could never play music due to their low dex um, dexterity, all right? Dexterity, excuse me. And again, there's no evolutionary advantage. What advantage... Would an ape gain by being able to play music? But there's no evolutionary advantage for us. There's no reason why we should be able to do music. This is an over-design. This is something that we can do in spite of the fact that supposedly we were selected just for mere survival. The author says the ability of humans to hold a pan with a tripod grip represents an interesting example of purposeful over-design. Very hard to explain by evolution. The tripod grip involves the use of the thumb, index finger, and middle finger. These three digits are perfectly designed to meet at a point to hold a pen with precision. Such a precision grip is what would be expected, since God created man to communicate through writing, including the writing of God's inspired and inerrant word by men working under the superintending influence of the Holy Spirit. But the tripod grip is not what would be expected if we had evolved from an ape-like creature, because writing has no survival function. What about the unique fine skin in humans? Fine skin, the author says, plays an important role in enhancing skill and even giving pleasure. Uh, but in contrast, apes have much less sensitive skin 
and a body covered with fur. Um, four types of main sensors in the skin, heat, cold, pain, and touch. Heat, cold, pain, and touch. This is an amazing design. It allows us to feel emotions and feel, or um, rather, sensations that drive emotions. These particular sensations that we feel uh, correlate to our brain, and in our brain, they are turned into these thoughts about the world. I mean, when it's, uh, you know, j just consider. Just consider the elevator conversation you're likely going to have as you go into work this morning. You're going to talk about how cold it was outside. And this amazing fact that your skin has been giving the ability to, 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 to touch that, to sense that, to feel that. And then the fact that your mind is going to be able to take that and talk about that and translate that into emotions. It might even affect the rest of your day. It might make you feel um, like you want to be somewhere else. It's going to incite emotion in you that it's so cold outside and you tell the person that you're in the elevator with that you wish you were headed on a plane to Turks and Caicos. And next thing you know, they're having this conversation about about the world and about life and about dreams and about travel and about vacation, all because built into your skin was the ability to feel that it was cold outside. What an amazing, amazing thought. Overdesign in skin is quite apparent. We have the appreciation of beauty. We can read Braille. Because of our sense of touch. Then of course there's the pleasure of touch. A mother and a baby or a husband and wife can enjoy skin contact and have an intimate relationship with one another. As a matter of fact, having just had you know two kids in the last couple of years, uh, I could tell that there's nothing like those first few moments and that important skin-on-skin -skin contact, especially between mother and baby. It, it's absolutely incredible. The amount of design. There's also unique facial expressions. Human facial expressions are another area where humans are remarkably different from apes. Humans have unique facial muscles. Give the humans um, uh, uh, the unique ability to make on the order of 10,000 different facial expressions. <laughs> what a thought. In contrast, apes can only make a handful of them. Such factors as the whites of the eyes and even the amount of facial muscles and expressions show clear contrast between human design and ape design. Um, again, God has given humans facial muscles and tear ducts to express the emotions of the heart. Such a brilliant integrated design is extremely difficult to explain by the evolutionary process of natural selection and simply random mutations. What about the unique ability of language? And speech. The human ability for language and speech sets us apart from all other creatures, including apes. Of course, apes have no ability for verbal speech. The author observes that researchers have estimated that humans can make over 50 distinct sounds in speech. These sounds are combined to make thousands of different words in an individual language. Words are combined according to the rules of grammar and give very wide range of meaning. Intonation and accent are also used to produce particular meanings. 
the human voice box, vocal tract, and brain are extremely well designed to produce intricate speech. Many actions are carried out during speech with split-second timing, including intense mental activities as well as fine controls of the many parts of the body. In contrast, the voice box, vocal tract, and brain of apes and monkeys cannot produce speech or language. The reason that talking seems easy for an adult is that the skill has been learned in childhood. We can actually do all these things with great ease uh, and great speed and very little effort. Interestingly, uh, regardless of how difficult and complex a language is, healthy children all over the world start to learn their mother tongue before the age of two. It's amazing to think uh, up to 100 muscles are being moved during speech with such precision to produce the right sounds. And if you just step back and get out of your mindset for just a moment of how random this world is, and you start to look at it in the context of a grand designer, it's amazing the difference. It's absolutely, it's absolutely amazing. We have a unique brain. Boy, the author spends a lot of time here, and I wish I could spend <laughs> I wish I could spend even half the time uh, that he spends in the book dealing with this issue. You know, the brain is perhaps the greatest anatomical difference uh, between apes and humans. Humans have an incredible level of intelligence, enables us to understand, create, design, plan, compose, and carry out extremely skillful tasks. Apes have relatively limited intelligence, all right? Um, It's adequate for surviving in the wild, but no more than that. There's a much larger cerebral cortex in humans. The human brain has about 100 billion uh, neurons and up to thousands of connections per neuron. This means that there are hundreds of trillions of connections in the human brain. So when you hear the evolutionists claim that 95% uh, to 98% um, uh, humans are that similar to apes, you got to remember that in the crucial area of the brain, there's actually a similarity of only 20% in brain to body weight ratio. So again, when the key performance criteria are considered, uh, there is not a close similarity, at least not on the order that um, the mainstream would really like for us to believe, Okay. Now, uh, the number of sensors in the body means the brain receives millions of pieces of information per second. But out of this data, only a very small amount of the information is important. But the human brain recognizes this, right? And it takes the essential information and quickly makes a decision about what to do in response. Animals, of course, also uh, filter information, but their task is much less complicated because they have that instinctive behavior. Do not make rational decisions, nor do they have to. We can recognize beauty. Uh, Part of the human brain, studies have actually shown that is dedicated to the appreciation of beauty, especially when you consider things like music, painting, and sculpture. Um, This is uh, simply remarkable. There's no evidence that chimpanzees or gorillas have any appreciation of natural or man-made beauty. Capabilities such as rational thought, inventiveness, and appreciation of beauty are what we would expect from the fact that humans are made in the image of God. He's infinitely rational, creative, and obviously loves beauty, but apes display none of these characteristics. It's most unreasonable to think that they arose in man by the blind, directionless process of natural selection and mutations. Hmm. 
you know, in knowledge and wisdom uh, in of, of, of humans, it's really amazing that we can see this great intelligence of human life. It's exactly what would be expected when we consider the biblical teaching that humans are designed. We're designed to be stewards of God's creation. We're to subdue every creature on earth. Uh, and to do that requires great skill and wisdom. Uh, we develop technology necessary for building construction and farming industries and engineering technologies. And this requires a very high level of intelligence. Um, the great intellectual capacity of the brain enables men to explore and enjoy many aspects of the created world. Truly, the human brain is a result not uh, an accident of nature, but a result of divine design. And then lastly and finally, the unique beauty, the unique beauty of humans. One way to see that the adult human body is well-proportioned is that when the arms are outstretched horizontally, the distance from fingertip to fingertip is approximately the same as the total height of the person. If a person is 1.5 meters tall, then the distance from fingertip to fingertip will be 1.5 meters. If a person is 2 meters tall, then this will be the distance from fingertip to fingertip. This equality of length means that the human body fits perfectly inside of squares um, as shown there in the book. All right, again, you got to get it. It's incredible. In contrast, apes have no such ability or no such equality of lengths. Humans also have beautiful hair. Um, the fast-growing hair on the head of humans makes a beautiful crown to the body, the author says. The relatively fast growth means that hair can be grown very long. It also means that hair can be regrown if it's damaged or in poor condition. Uh, it's also fine and capable of being fashioned into different styles. The human hairline on the scalp is remarkably neat around the neck and forehead. It's difficult to argue that the hairline could be better placed in also hard to explain how hairlines could have evolved by chance. While we know that genes are, you know, what control hair production and we know which ones they are, it's difficult to imagine why evolution would select for particular placements of hair. Then there's a beautiful face. The face is particularly important and beautiful. Um, it's uh, because it's the main source of identity for a person. One reason why the human face is beautiful is because the eyes, lips, nose, and ears have delicate design. Humans have soft, rounded lips that apes do not have, and humans have a nose that hides the nostril openings from view, again in contrast to apes. An important reason for the beauty of the human face is variety, right, in appearance. Every person has a unique face, with the exception of identical twins. In contrast, apes have quite a limited variety of appearance in the face. So, what does all this mean? Well, in conclusion, the author writes this, The purposeful over-design of man is an enormous challenge to evolution, because such design cannot be explained in terms of evolutionary survival advantages. The skillfulness of man shows that he is made a little lower than the angels, not a little above the beasts. The ability of man to communicate and express thoughts and emotions shows that he is made in the image of God, not the image of an ape. The beauty of man shows that humans have been wonderfully made, not formed by a blind chance process of evolution. And what an incredible, incredible truth that is. I'm thankful 
I'm thankful for these chapters of this book. It really just helps us to see the difference. When we go to the zoo, by the way, there's a reason that they're in the zoo, and we're outside of it. But when you go to the zoo, you can tell an obvious difference between the people walking around and taking pictures and those who are in the cage. We didn't come from them. They're not our ancestor. We don't, we don't pretend, we don't act in practice like they are. And this is one thing that has always bothered me. When scientists go to work, they become scientists and they begin to think this way and they begin to think about biological evolution and they begin to think about how everything is related and they begin to, to do their work as if that were true, but then they come home and they live a completely contradictory life. No scientist comes home and looks in the eyes of their children and sees them for the bacteria that they inevitably are. Just bags of water, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, bacteria. No, nobody sees their, their children that way. When you look into the eyes of a child, into the eyes of a child, really, you are looking, you are looking directly at the image of God. And it's our job to point that out. And it's our job to show that we're different. Will you join me in doing that? Will you join me in showing the world how they're different and how they're special? In a world where equality and rights rule and reign, we need to give everybody the worldview, the only worldview that allows for that to be the case. If you're listening today and you've not been satisfied by what most people tell you, if you've not been satisfied, you, you in other words, you believe that when you look around, you see incredible design. You need to be aware that that is the way the world actually is. It's not just what you think. You think that way because it's a picture of reality. And even though there might be good evidence for it at times, what we're told in the majority of circumstances, the, the conventional story about history is simply not reality. It doesn't match reality. So that's what we're here talking about, all right? Now, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, stop what you're doing. If you've never talked to God, if you've never asked God to reveal himself to you, stop. Stop everything. Stop everything right now and just bow your head and say, God, look, I, I realize that this world is designed. I realize that, that there's no way that I came that I'm related to an ape. I realize that great-grandpa is not a plant. And Heavenly Father, I... Uh, uh, just, just, and you might not call him Heavenly Father, but you know, just say, God, look, if you're out there, reveal yourself to me. If you're interested, you can go to my website, and I'm going to post a link in the show notes to an article that I wrote called "Why Trust God." It'll give you the story of reality. It's going to give you real quick the story of a man named Jesus, and you can read about that. It's kind of like, um, just a way for you to understand the Christian worldview in a very succinct way. So I encourage you to go there. It's uh, The link is called Why Trust God. And again, I'll put that in the show notes. Um, 
thank you for joining us this week. Look, I really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you giving me your ear for the last hour or so. Um, if you want to invite me out to speak at your church, I'd be happy to come out there. Um, you can just go to the website and go to our preaching page, steveshram.com slash preaching, and um, you can go there and fill out the form at the bottom, and we'll give you a call back um, if you'd like to have us come out and speak. we got a list of topics there. We talk about different apologetics things. Of course, we also talk about creation science, um, of course, so that's part of it as well. And um, don't forget to go to jointca.co, jointca.co to get on the wait list for our upcoming project, the Creation Academy. We launched it, uh, or we, we began talking about it a couple weeks ago. We got some great things in the works. I've been talking to people even this week about it, um, about getting on board some, some help with instructing and, and actually making some lesson plans and things for the Creation Academy. If you don't know what it is, I'm not going to take time now to tell you, but go to jointca.co to learn about that get signed up for the wait list. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you so much for our time together on this podcast. Thank you for allowing us to explore your word and your world. Thank you for designing us the way you have. And not only that, but giving us the unique ability to be able to appreciate, recognize, and study that design. We love you, Father. Thank you for giving us the breath of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again so much for joining me this week on the Creation Academy. Pray you have a blessed week, and we will see you right here next time. All right? Next Thursday morning around 7 to 7.30. God bless. Bye-bye.